Welcome back to Clinicians Brief, the podcast. I'm your host, registered veterinary technician, Becky Mosser. We have another special episode for you all today. Today, we are joined by Dr. Peter Weinstein, a repeat guest of ours. He's joining us to discuss some of the impacts of COVID-19 and what it's having on our veterinary practices. So welcome back, Dr. Peter. Thank you, Miss Becky. It's always a pleasure to hang out with you, even if we're just hanging virtually. I know. I was really excited to hear you were available in your maybe not quite as packed schedule here as of recently to have this conversation with us. And I know you've been here before, but just kind of give our listeners a brief overview of what you do out there on the West Coast. Well, my primary responsibility and and where I spend the vast majority of my time is the executive director of the Southern California Veterinary Medical Association. I am a veterinarian, so I was in private practice and I've got a business degree as well. So my role as an executive director is really to be an advocate for the veterinary profession. And there is no more vital time than the current to help our colleagues in all aspects of the veterinary team, whether it's the doctors, the associates, the managers, technicians, animal caretakers, client service people, industry supporters, pet owners, all of the stakeholders. So my role right now is to support the veterinary profession and all of our stakeholders and get through the current crisis. And when that's over, my job is just to be an advocate for the veterinary profession and a uh, cheerleader in all sorts of ways through education, communication, etc. You have a long-standing history of doing that, right? I mean, between president of the Southern California VMA, the California VMA, Pet Partners, you're a chair with the AVMA Veterinary Economic Strategy Committee, you do consulting, you have for a long time advocated for the veterinary team, the veterinary practice, just kind of pushing forward and making sure that the entire veterinary community is advancing. And you've done some amazing work around that. Thank you. But when you say long time, it just means I'm old. No, you started (laughs) at a young age, like a fine wine. You know that. Well, I want to have something more fun to talk to you about, honestly. But we are living in the world of COVID-19 now, and it feels like there's nothing really else to talk about these days. And there's a lot we need to talk about. So you join us today to kind of dive into some questions that we're receiving from the veterinary practices, veterinary managers out there. And we're going to kind of just work through some of these questions. One at a time. There's no smooth show flow. And we just want to make sure we're getting the information to our listeners out there. And I think the first thing that we started to recognize as a concern is in these shelter in place type situations, veterinary practices have come out as essential businesses. But on a higher level, that's the ruling. But on the lower level within each state, we have different guidelines about services and what that looks like. How do you recommend deciding and communicating what services, practices should be offering? The question is really challenging because we've got 50 states and 50 practice acts and the District of Columbia. So every state has a different practice act. And what the governor has said in terms of what is an essential business defines veterinary medicine as an essential business. And in some states, they were very specific about which services a veterinary practice can perform. And in other states, they were much more on the honor system that veterinarians would make the right logical, ethical, appropriate decision to protect the staff in the hospital, to protect the clients, to protect the ownership, and to protect the pets. And so we are in this quandary where different states have different exposures in terms of what they can and cannot do, or more importantly, what they should or shouldn't do. 
So I want to say as my first message in terms of that, please check with what your governmental agencies within the state have directed and try to drill down into if they have specifically defined which services you may or may not perform. I believe there are some states that have said veterinarians should delay, postpone the desexing procedures, the spays and neuters, whereas others have said use your best judgment. Go to your state board website, go to your public health website, go to your veterinary association website, who really should be the center of everything that you do. Your veterinary association should be giving you contact information and helping direct you and make sure you check in with your state government agencies. So with that as a foundation, then decisions have to be made. And I go back to the decisions regarding safety first. And your team's safety is imperative. And your client's safety is imperative. And of course, if you're an owner, leader, manager, your safety as well. So deciding and communicating which those services are really shows me that practices have to be focused on leadership. And most importantly, that this is a great opportunity to to be a servant leader where you meet with your team, you communicate your concerns about them as team members, you communicate your concerns about clients, and you communicate concerns about pets, and you talk about what you need to do as a team to protect one another and which services are need to do and which services are nice to do and which services are we ain't going to do. And so I think a lot of this comes into a communication. And if you overlay this with the fact that people need jobs and the hospital provides financial support for that job, then you have this undertone of, well, we still have to run a business and we have to pay the bills and we have to pay the staff. But if, in my humble opinion, and I may be drawn and quartered or hung in effigy for saying that, if you're making decisions strictly based upon money, you are increasing risk for your team. And if you take care of your team now, they will take care of you later. And so I can't emphasize that the most important thing when it comes to deciding what is an essential service and what is a needed service is team-based, number one. Number two, and this is a long-winded answer and I apologize, but number two is perception of importance from a client's standpoint and having them understand that what was an emergency a month ago is still an emergency. What is less of an emergency a month ago is probably not an emergency right now. But in the eyes of the clients, they are concerned. They are worried. So your job, your role is to enhance your communication with your clients as well and help them triage a case that maybe can wait. Since we don't know how long we're going to wait, that maybe can wait maybe a day or two or maybe a month or two. And I think that we have to look at triaging cases, which means improved telephone communication. It may include utilization of virtual consulting through telemedicine. But really, to get through this, it's going to be communication, communication, communication. And let me just put in one more point so I can take a breath. But one more point is wellness care and routine care. Depending upon your state, depending upon the public health in your state, rabies may still be a mandated vaccination that you have to administer to protect the public health. Well, if you have a client coming in for a rabies vaccination, which is a well care or could be a part of a routine visit that's mandated, yeah, that kind of fits into essential. 
are there other things that you can do at that visit so they don't have to come back in a month or two and you get it all taken care of? So I would suggest that when it comes to wellness or routine care, if it can wait, it should wait. And look at your mandates, understand what your guidelines are within your state. And the bottom line is have a lot of communications with your staff and a lot of communication with your clients. And then I think you'll come out of this much stronger at the end as a result of that. So I apologize for the long-winded answer, and I probably could have gone on for another 15 minutes. <laughs> no, I love it. I love it, and I'm going to pick a little bit of it apart because, truthfully, you hit on so many of the important points that need to be made, that need to be said. And then I think there will be further questions that maybe will play into some of the things that you said so we can drill it down a little bit more. One of the first things I want to ask you about your opinion on is going back to what you said in the very beginning of this answer that there are 50 states plus D.C. and 50 practice acts and that some states were specific, some states were an honor system. Okay, Dr. Weinstein 2020, like if you're in charge here, who should this be coming from then? Are we okay with the fact that there is no across the board answer? Should we be looking to AVMA? Should we be looking to some of these associations to create these guidelines that say what is essential and giving veterinarians some guidelines. Why do we always in the veterinary industry get our guidelines from outside of ourselves? What a question. Okay, I'll be looking for the bus to run me over shortly. No, no, no. no. So here's the challenge. Okay, professional associations, the AVMA, California VMA, the uh, South Carolina VMA, the Oklahoma VMA, are not regulatory agencies. They are advocacy groups. So even if I, as the executive director of the Southern California Veterinary Medical Association, said that the only thing that's essential during COVID-19 is expressing anal glands on bulldogs, that wouldn't hold any water because I couldn't regulate that. So it's up to the state boards who are regulatory in nature and who in the state of California answers to the Department of Consumer Affairs that answers to the legislature, that answers to the governor. So the regulatory boards are, most of them, advocates from the consumer standpoint. And they are slow in making decisions because sometimes decision-making takes an act of a legislative body to make those changes. So ultimately, what's been happening is the governors in each state, through whichever advisors they have, are making directives to be enforced by the state board or other regulatory agencies within the state. The associations very easily could make recommendations, but they're not enforceable. And in many cases, it would really behoove us. I got that word in. I get to use behoove once a day. Thank you for that. (laughs) (laughs) It would behoove us to have some common ground in by which we we all focus. But the telemedicine discussion is a 50-state discussion because it fits under 50 different practice acts. The delivery of care, the practice act in the state of California is like 43,000 pages. It's like Harry Potter 7. The practice act in other states may be like seven pages. So it's up to the state boards to enforce. It's up to the state associations to translate, define, and help provide guidance. And I hope that answered your question. It did. It answered it beautifully. And you're absolutely right. It makes sense without the governance. I guess my frustration comes, so for example, here in North Carolina, if you reach out to 
the Veterinary Medical Board and you ask about the necessity of rabies for our clients and if it's considered essential, they defer you to the Department of Public Health because they are the department in North Carolina that oversees the rabies vaccination. And if you go to the link that they send you, it gives you owner information, tells you basically you should vaccinate your cat. And if you call the phone number, it tells you they're closed because of COVID. So unfortunately, it's not clear to our practitioners here. And I worry that in other states, there's a lack of ability to get this information because of that very reason. And I'm certainly not trying to call out any one board or state or run anybody over with a bus, but it feels so reactive. And I feel like we're looking to where do we get the resources to know and to guide us in these situations where maybe we don't have a precedence and know? And for our teams to help say, this is why we are looking at this or that or the other. And I just find myself frustrated in that I don't feel like we're able to access this information readily. And so I feel like we may be spinning our wheels a little bit. So here's what I would challenge everybody to do. You have an executive director in either a local association or a state association. I mean, this is what I do for a living. And you send them a question. How do I do with this? How do I deal with that? And if somebody sends me a question and says, are rabies an essential vaccination? My question will be, I will get you an answer. And so I contact veterinary public health, and we're fortunate to have veterinary public health. I will contact the sheltering agencies in the general proximity, and I will ask, what the answer is. And then I will post it on the website through an email, through an update, and indicate that this is the messaging I'm getting that rabies is still an essential procedure and you still must be administering rabies vaccinations because we still will be licensing pets, et cetera, et cetera. So I think this is a great opportunity for members of your state and local and national associations to ask questions of your leadership and have them find the answers for you because they may have a larger network that you can't necessarily easily find. And while you're trying to deliver care to clients and pets and team, use the leadership around you to help find those answers. I love that. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And having those resources to go to, it makes a big difference. And it's like now is as good a time as any, if not the best time ever, to be a part of these associations and to making sure you are involved. So you are getting the resources and networking the information that's the most up to date, right? Absolutely. And thank you very much for that paid political announcement. (laughs) I'll be expecting my check. Well, hey, I will throw out there, since I've already gotten myself in so much trouble today, that in my state, you are not actually allowed to be a part of your VMA as a technician. So there is zero public announcement on my end because technicians aren't allowed to be a part of theirs. Well, I feel Um, badly for you. We actually have a technician on our board Uh, locally in Southern California, and she's got a voting position on the board. And we have over 500 staff members that are part of the Southern California Veterinary Medical Association. I know the California VMA has strong leadership from the licensed registered veterinary technicians. And so, Becky, it's time to go to uh, whatever the capital is. Charlotte? Is Charlotte the capital? Raleigh. Raleigh. It's time to go to Raleigh and start protesting in front of the state board as you guys need and deserve rights. Yeah, it's so true. I mean, we do. We have a technician on our state board, um, not on the Veterinary Medical Association, but it's a growing problem. And honestly, thank you for your paid advertisement. <laughs> I think we're neutral now. There you go. Um, all right. So back on focus here, uh, moving away from all of our rights or lack thereof, we're going to look at this curbside receiving because this is what I'm seeing the most. I would say, are you seeing this a lot out where you are as well, where practices are getting pets, uh, having them call that they're there and then taking the pet from the car? 
are into maybe do a Zoom or a phone call with the veterinarian. Are you seeing that? Absolutely. We are doing doc in the box right now. <laughs> okay. It's <laughs> wild, right? So what lessons are you aware of that we're learning from the switch? Like, what are you seeing around this? Well, I think this is such a fluid situation. What I think the first problem that arose was not thinking how to engage the client who's in the car during the process. So what was happening, the client was in the car and they might as well have been in the waiting room because the technician was running out and saying, I just had a conversation with the doctor and this is what they think is going on. Would you like us to go ahead and do this? And they would run back in and talk to the doctor and the doctor would have more questions and run back out into the car. So once we got past the trying to do your 10,000 steps for each visit, <laughs> yeah. we got to a point that basically said, okay, let's get the client on the phone. And whether we do it through a Zoom call, whether we do it through FaceTime, or whether we just get on the call, you basically put the client on speakerphone and you walk them through what's going on and you engage them in the conversation to the point that you can digitally send them an estimate that they can look at in their car while you're going over uh, the findings from the physical examination. And the ultimate goal is to decrease client-staff contact so that the risk factors are mitigated, number one, to do as much as you possibly can with the doctor and the staff member as the only people within that edge of social distancing. I mean, honestly, it's hard to restrain a pet and have the doctor six feet apart so hopefully you're using some sort of PPE to protect yourselves from each other. But I think the biggest thing that was at least a shortfall initially was communication. And I was talking to some staff members of doctors recently and doctors who were, not everybody is the world's greatest communicator, even face-to-face, -face, are now being taxed to communicate clearly, succinctly, effectively, and efficiently to a client that is... 100 yards away, sitting in their car, concerned about what's going on with their pet, both from a physical standpoint, from an emotional standpoint, and obviously, to a degree, a financial standpoint. And the role of the team here and the role of the doctor is to clearly get to the point. What's going on? What are the findings? What needs to be done? How much is it going to cost? Can you do it today? What's the aftercare going to be? and try to anticipate questions and provide answers in as effective a fashion as you possibly can. I mean, that's no easy feat just overnight, right? I mean, how are clients receiving this? Do you have any idea? I think you have a mixed bag of clients and as you do a mixed bag of veterinarians, and it's the same mixed bag that you had beforehand. I think that those clients and those practices where the doctor and the team had created a very high level of trust before COVID-19 are having a lot less problems than those practices that hadn't built that level of trust. And the biggest challenge is with new clients who maybe are having their first veterinary experience or second or third veterinary experience through this doc-in-the-box situation and instead of this relationship, I mean, veterinary medicine is a relationship-based business, and you can't build a relationship through a screen. You have to build it through face-to-face -face and eye contact and body language, and that's really hard to do from a distance standpoint. So clients who trust you are accepting this. Clients who are skittish 
are having issues with it. And I think a lot of it could be mitigated, improved, if before the client got there, they knew exactly what to expect. So here is the challenge for the practices and the owners and managers and staff that are listening to this. Get your iPhone out and record the client dock-in-the-box experience from start to finish and let a client actually see what's going to happen. You can edit it down to a couple of minutes, but let them see what's going to happen so that you can address something. Joe Rogan ran a great TV show. It's called Fear Factor. I'm sure Becky spent hours watching that. Endless. Well, we got to get past the fear factor right now because it was bad enough when we took the pet to the back of the hospital. They're going behind the door. Well, now they're going into the building and you can't go there. So what can we do to help mitigate that fear factor? Well, show them what it's going to look like. Let them see what the experience will be like. Send them a link to a YouTube video that you created. Write up a description of it. Whatever you want to do. Get this out to the clients that haven't come in so that they know what to expect. Put it on your Facebook page. Make this completely transparent, and then the fear factor goes away, and the trust becomes a part of what clients can expect when they reach out to your hospital. I love the soundbite of mitigate the fear factor. I say all the time that I think we forget what it feels like to be a client in the veterinary industry until we have to be a client. And I hate being separated from my pet. And so I truly feel like this has got to be difficult for clients. So I love the idea of mitigating the fear factor and giving them as much information as possible. I guess out of curiosity, what do you think we'll learn from this? What will be residual from COVID and the change of how we're dealing with clients and we're going about our practice? Well, that depends if we're a golden retriever or a Yorkie. Okay. If we are trained as well as a golden retriever, then we are continually learning. If we're a Yorkie, we'll continue to pee on the floor because I never learn. I'm just as what I do. This is the nature of the beast. So I am hoping that veterinarians will learn. And I think we will. I think the pain is going to be great enough when this is all said and done that we will. There has been more change in the veterinary profession in the last three weeks than since Noah created the ark as the first veterinarian. So true. We have been forced to accept and accelerate change at a speed that is so freaking uncomfortable that it's Mach 4. But hopefully, when this is all said and done, it'll be a routine and we'll start to have new habits. Without pain or pleasure, there is no reason to create new habits. But I think we're going to start to create new habits. I can get into the fact that right now we could actually do away with reception areas and waiting areas because clients aren't waiting. Well, what if we start to build hospitals without reception areas and waiting areas in the future and the staff technician who's now going out to the car just greets the clients right at the front door and brings them right into an exam room? And all the receptionists do who have a private room somewhere in the back is answer phones Because right now, that's what we're doing. You have a single staff member, a single doctor, handling the entire transaction from start to finish. And you've got staff who are handling the phones who really aren't having any client contact. What's to say that isn't a good business model in the future and may offset some of the costs and create a different experience for clients down the road? I'm suggesting there are so many good things that can come out of this. And the longer we do it, the more ingrained it will become and the easier it will become to be part of the practice that 
hopefully we won't start to go back to bad habits. Yes. And I love the idea of being able to pick up some, like you said, good habits. Maybe I love to believe that good comes from all bad things. And kind of, I guess, along those exact lines is in trying to avoid furloughs and layoffs, what are some of your tips for minimizing expenses in a time like this? All right. So if we look at an income statement, we have the income side, which is being impacted in many practices. I'd suggest more than 50% of the hospitals are flatline or losing money. I shouldn't say losing money, but whose revenues are down from where they were at a similar period last year. And then we have the bottom side. And the bottom side, the major expenses on the expense side are cost of staff, cost of doctors, cost of goods, and cost of facility. So if we try to save the people expense and not impact it, we've got to look at scheduling. We've got to look at maybe taking full-time employees down to the minimum number of hours that fit into the full-time definition and part-time employees down to minimum hours just so we can keep them on the payroll and keep them as part of the team. And we can talk about splitting shifts and all sorts of different ways to mitigate risk as well. But If we look at the efforts to avoid layoffs, avoid furloughs, I think part of it is getting to a minimum number of staff hours to be able to deliver safe, effective, efficient care. And that is safe from an infectious standpoint, and that is safe from an animal restraint and an animal care standpoint. So the two big expenses, cost of doctors, cost of staff, that's going to be a scheduling situation. And that's an availability situation, and it goes back to our shelter-in-place conversation as to what services are we going to be providing. Then the next big expense is cost of goods. So many moving parts here. You've got the sundries, the gauze, the tape, the catheters, and everything else that go into that. You also have cost of maintenance. Well, most practices, and I won't say all, but most practices aren't doing any boarding. They're not doing any bathing at the moment. So your overhead costs in boarding and bathing should be going down because you don't have the cage maintenance, you don't have the food, so you may have some savings there. They may not be much, but there will be some savings in utilization of the facility from that standpoint. Of course, you're still paying for it, I mean the facility costs, but you may not have the need for as much cleanser in those parts of the hospital. Other cost of goods, inventory, that goes to pets for prescription medications. Well... Having six months of flea control sitting on the shelves right now is probably not a good idea. Do you have an online pharmacy? Do you have an online store? Can you learn how to use your online store to give you the same profit? I didn't say revenue. I said profit. Can you net the same with an online store that you are making by selling a product in your hospital? Or... Can you mail the product to your clients? Because we don't want clients coming to our practices right now, but we want to keep them compliant. So can you mail products to your clients? What other things can you do to keep your inventory under control? So inventory, cost of goods, pet food, home delivery of pet food, anything you can do to make cost and convenience part of what's going on and not lose revenue and subsequently net to the big box players that are out there such as Chewy or Target or Walmart where people are going already. So you've got to look at what can you do to minimize your inventory. Now, you've got a bill that's coming in from a laboratory or a food company or a manufacturer or a distributor. What kind of arrangements can you work with them? 
Are you on a net 30? Can you make that a net 90? Can everybody take a deep breath and slow the payment process down just a little till things start to normalize? The other thing is, and I am not a financial planner, I am not an accountant, I am not an attorney, but I would strongly suggest that every practice look into the money that the government is offering right now to help offset some of the costs of mortgages and rent and overhead and staff costs and everything else and look into that. AVMA has got some great resources at their website on it. So what you're trying to do right now is keep the cash flowing while working differently. And I think this is a great opportunity to work smarter and not harder. It's going to be harder already because you're doing it differently. And also to take a step back every day. Take an hour every day to work on your practice and not just in your practice and see where you can streamline some things that maybe um, were inefficient before. What can we do to streamline some things now with hopefully having some long-term impact from that standpoint? So after you get past the four big ones, cost of doctors, cost of staff, cost of goods, you get to cost of overhead. Well, if you're the owner and the building is paid in full, maybe you defer rent payment to yourself so you have cash flow to take care of payroll. If you have a mortgage, talk to the banks about mortgage deferrals and seeing what you can do from that standpoint, as well as some of the SBA loans that are coming through at the moment. If you're in a leasehold, talk to the leasing agent because they don't want you going out of business. So see what they can do about deferring lease payments as well. Your goal right now is to get through the most painful parts with the least amount of damage as you possibly can with the thought that at the end of the tunnel, it's not a train, but it's actually the light. And that hopefully you've been able to put some cash away, keep your staff on board so that when things return to normal, you're there with a strong staff strongly supported by leadership, and that they're eager to come back and continue to make and provide care for the clients and the patients that you take care of. And then after you get past those top expense areas, everything is about nickeling and diming and trying to save money here and save money there and call your vendors and talk to them about delayed payments and everything else. But anything you can do to keep your revenue where it is, control your expenses, and keep your payroll as minimized as you possibly can while still providing care. Sounds easy, right? Yeah, I mean, right. Piece of cake. But I mean, I, I think you're right. And it boils down to being creative, asking for help, looking at your resources. And, and I think those are all things that we maybe don't necessarily do naturally. No, I think we are very wasteful in many ways. One of the first practices I worked at back in the 70s, I will never forget this, the veterinarian who I was working for, he would grab the Rocal, spray it on the table, and grab some paper towels and clean the table. And then he had a stash of these previously used paper towels just underneath the table for using for the next time that the table needed to be cleaned. And it's like, wow, that's saving money to save paper towels. And I don't want to go back. And by the way, I am not advocating for this, but you probably, well, Becky, you're pretty young, but there were days when we used to recycle surgical gloves and recycle syringes and needles. I'm not suggesting we want to do that, but I am suggesting that there are ways to be much more effective and efficient in the way we do things 
even thinking about, hmm, maybe we should just try to schedule all our x-rays at the same time so we're not going in and out, in and out, in and out. We're getting the x-rays taken, maybe it's two people, or, or maybe we're doing non-hold x-rays. Wouldn't that be wonderful? All pets are sedated for x-rays and we don't have to be in the room with them. But maybe we can stage them so that the x-ray room is being used in a much more effective and efficient fashion. Or we do all our lab work in bulk instead of spreading it out throughout the day, which is a much more effective and efficient utilization of time. And there's all sorts of ways to look at the way we do things that can be time savers, which has a price, and cost savers as well. I love that idea of combining your services. It makes a lot of sense. And I wish we could kind of just clone you and uh, distribute you among all the practices because I think everyone could use you just kind of going through and helping them uh, to think creatively. And as much as I want to pick your brain all day, we've got to kind of whittle down our questions here and wrap things up. So uh, the last thing I kind of wanted to ask and get your thoughts on are, uh, what do you think about veterinarians being called to assist human healthcare providers if this situation gets worse? It's interesting. I was watching one of the news networks talk about the challenges in New York, and I was thinking, wouldn't it be cool if some of the veterinary staff whose hours were cut or laid off or furloughed? could go help in human health care facilities. And I believe that there are some facilities that are bringing back uh, retired doctor staffs and other things to help. I know that there are, the state of New York, for example, has been trying to bring people in from other states to help. I think it would be wonderful if hospital owners could communicate with their local hospitals and health care providers and say, we know you're short-staffed. I've got some team that we want to keep on the payroll, but we don't have room for it. They are used to cleaning. They're used to bad smells. You just need to help protect them from a personal protective equipment standpoint. Do you have room on your payroll to help some people stay employed who could easily step right in and be a part of your overall team from a client service standpoint, from a maintenance standpoint, from passing surgical instrument standpoint, or whatever the case may be. I think it would be wonderful. I don't think we should be making a diagnosis, and I don't think we should be treating people. It always scares me when you're on an airplane and the flight attendant gets over the microphone on the plane and says, are there any doctors on the plane? And it's like, yeah, I'm a doctor, but I'm not really sure what I'm going to do if somebody's having a heart attack because that's just, if it were had four legs, yeah, but two legs makes me really nervous. So anyhow, in answer to your question, I think if we can keep our staff members employed, don't put them at risk, though. I'm going to go back to that point of don't put them at risk. And of course, working in human health care increases the risk. But if you can keep them employed, if you can give them opportunities to keep food on their table, they will come back in the future and be exquisitely appreciative. Take care of your team now. They will take care of you later. Oh my gosh, that's a beautiful sentiment. And I think that's the best bottom line. I think I want to name the podcast. That. <laughs> that's this episode. Dr. Weinstein, I could talk to you all day long. I, I really appreciate your insight. In fact, we may have to have you back to answer some more of these questions we've received. But for now, I'll let you go. Please stay safe and keep in touch with us. And thank you for everything you're doing out there. Becky, it's my pleasure. Thank you for everything that you are doing and that Clinician's Brief is doing to keep information flowing with the veterinarians that are out there and you be safe and be sane and look forward to being able to do this with you face-to-face -face versus screen-to-screen. -screen. That's right, soon. Thanks again to today's guests for joining us and thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. While you're there, make sure you subscribe, 
rate and review. We appreciate it if you leave us all the stars. You can listen to podcasts as well on our website at cliniciansbrief.com backslash podcasts. You can find us at facebook.com backslash cliniciansbrief, on Twitter at cliniciansbrief, and on Instagram at clinicians.brief. You can also drop us a line at podcast at briefmedia.com. Clinicians Brief, the podcast is a brief media production produced by Alexis Ustry, sound by Randall Stupka, hosted by me, Becky Mosser, with special thanks to production assistant Michelle Moncrest.